Welcome to Sell Less, Mean More. I'm your host, Jolanthi Gabri, and in this episode of our podcast, I'm joined by technologist and business owner, Julie Gibson from HitNet. Julie's a fascinating and unique woman, and she's at the helm of a business that does important work, connecting the 12% of the Australian population and people on the Pacific Islands who have difficulty accessing technology with the technology they so sorely need. In our conversation, we talk about Indigenous technologies and discovering how it is that we know our business is really working. Enjoy today's conversation with Julie Gibson from HitNet. Hi, I'm Yolanthi Gabri, and today on Sell Less Mean More, I'm speaking with Julie Gibson, who is the CEO of HitNet. Um, Julie, we're really glad to have you with us today. I'm just going to get straight cracking into it. How do you help people? Um, so HitNet is all about delivering information and services into hard-to-reach communities. And so what we have is a digital platform that spreads across Australia that enables people, um, particularly in remote communities in Australia, so Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders particularly, um, to be able to connect with the digital world. Um, so that is the, the main kind of work that we do. And would you consider your background more tech and innovation based or have you worked with um, hard to reach communities more regularly in the past? Ah, that's a really good question. So my background was very much in um, in technology. So I was a software developer in large corporate organisations, lots of insurance companies for about 17 years. Um, I, yeah, while my time in that in that world was fantastic and it enabled me to work overseas and so on, and it was very well resourced and and paid and so on I was always looking for something um, a little bit more worthwhile to do with the skills that I had Um, so um, while I was working in corporate IT um, my husband and my children and I got the opportunity to live in central Australia for a year and it was while I was there um, back in 2000 that I got the opportunity to work with um, a number of Aboriginal people, um, particularly around um, Uluru Katajuta, um, to learn about um, them, the lives that they lead, their culture um, and their technology as well. Um, and, yeah, and it just really, really opened up the world um, to me as an Australian, as a white Australian. And yeah, when I came back to Melbourne to my very comfortable life in my insurance company, um, it had really sparked um, a fire to to just try and do something a little bit different. I'm really fascinated by the way you've spoken about um, the way that the Aboriginal community introduced you to their technology. Mm. Can you just elaborate on that a little bit? Because that's really set off a light bulb in my head. That's really interesting. Mm -hmm. Yes. Well, as you know, um, our first Australians have been here for 60 to 80,000 years. Um, We're learning a lot about what happened, you know, many years ago and and some of that has been passed down through um, through stories and song um, but also you know through different um, you know excavations and relics that have been found over time at, with rock art and so on to see that the type of world that they lived in back then and you know 
traditionally white Australians we've been taught that um, you know that Indigenous people were hunters and gatherers and they're nomads that roamed the land but we now know that that that's definitely not the case and that they did have um, sophisticated um, you know um, sort of settlements set up and and particularly around um, you know there, there's now a UNESCO um, fish trap site in Western Victoria um, that's just been announced, and so you know they're they're saying that that dates back um, eight to ten thousand years. Um, I think it's called Budge Bim, um, the fish traps down there, and so there's this amazing um, system that the Aboriginal people set up um, eight to ten thousand years ago that is that is still there today. That's yeah. definitely a technology. It sure is. And it speaks to establishment and permanence. Absolutely. Yeah, we've got a lot to learn from them. Um, I'd like to know a little bit about the transition from working at those uh, insurance companies and being an employee to being an employer. Um, what were the surprising things about becoming an employer? Um, it was a it was a slow transition. So um, when I eventually um, left corporate IT, I was actually um, so Hitnet. Previous to being a social business, it was actually part of a university department. It was a university research project, um, and so I was brought on there as the technical manager. So um, yeah, so. I went from, you know, being a software developer to being this technical manager, so that was probably for six or seven years. And then um, we eventually um, took it out of the university and set it up as a business. So um, when that happened, I had just um, finished an MBA and my business partner and myself um, thought, well, okay, this is an opportunity that's arisen. Um, We certainly didn't want the work that we had done with HitNet within the university to die. Um, We'd already established this national network with all the HitNet hubs. And so, um, yeah, the opportunity to set it up a business was there. And so we just jumped in and did it. It was, yeah, it was a pretty, um, you know, risky, terrifying thing to do. Um, But um, yeah, certainly no regrets there. And when did you get the sense that it was working? What was there, was there a, a moment, a catalyst moment that you went, oh, the risk and the, the risk and the stress has been worth it, it's working? And, and how do you know that HitNet's working? Yeah, well, that, that's right. You know, um, we're, we're a little bit different to an average business in that it's, um, you know, it's not just about the profit, it's also about the impact that we're having in the communities where we work. And, um, yeah, just going back to you know, realising that it's working. Like it actually took me many years to actually come to the realisation that we were actually running a business, which is a pretty strange thing to say. But, um, yeah, sort of, um, yeah, it took, took me... I, I can't actually remember the moment when mm-hmm. I realised that, oh, gosh, I'm actually running a business. But anyway, um, that did, did, did happen at one point. Um, yeah, but in terms of the work that we're doing in the communities, um, you know, we have to listen to the people where, where we do the work. Um, like, we can easily capture the usage of our platform and we can see that people are using it, but we need to also 
hear from people um, what they think of it. And so getting into the communities where we're doing the work is really, really important. And one of the important bits of information we collected um, in recent years was that people said, well, it's great to have the, the HitNet hub, so it's essentially like a touchscreen um, in the health clinic, but not everybody goes to the health clinic. Not everybody feels comfortable accessing that information in the health clinic. You'd be much better off having it outdoors where people feel more comfortable accessing that information. And we just sort of thought, well, that's a bit odd because surely it's more private when it's indoors rather than outdoors. So anyway, um, we, it probably took us three years to develop this new piece of hardware. Um, There's a lot of R&D that went into it and our first prototype um, went up to Alice Springs Library last year for six months to see how it would be used. And um, it was fantastic. We got, in six months, we got twice as much use as we get from our normal indoor units. Um, we could see the length of time that people were using it also um, skyrocket. So typical user of an indoor hub is around seven to eight minutes, whereas outdoor the outdoor um, unit was being used up to 25 minutes. And that could also have been that it's actually got a mobile phone charger on it as well. So people are standing there charging their phones while they're using the touchscreen as well. So, yeah, um, it's all about talking to the communities and, and getting their feedback and, you know, trying to be responsive to that as much as we can. Because the assumptions we make sometimes around how our products will be used or how they'll be received, they can be can be really off can mm, they absolutely absolutely and so you know so from you know so our assumption that that people wouldn't think it was private well they, they do actually feel like it's more private they don't feel like the receptionist at the health clinic is listening to what they're looking at or knows what they're looking at and um yeah def definitely um it's um yeah it's being used in different ways to what we expected you mentioned before that it took some time for you to come to the realisation that you were actually in business. What did you think you were doing initially? Was it because of the extension of it coming from a, an academic space? How did yeah, that's right. So, so, so really we, you know, one day we were running projects within the university, the next day we were running them within our business. So yeah, that's right. It just felt like it had flowed over um, in, into that business. And so, yeah, it, in, in a lot, lot of ways it didn't, didn't make a huge amount of difference, but you know, at the end of the day, we still had to, um, you know, look at the profit and loss and do the do the BAS each quarter and submit a tax return. So that was sort of, <laughs> yeah, the additional things, yes. Did you have any, uh, once you, once you recognised that you were in the mantle of the business owner, um, did it change any aspects of your practice? Um, how, how did you go about um, introducing your product you're offering to both new communities but um, but new organisations? Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, yeah, sudden, suddenly it, it, it took a little while but um, I, I guess when one of the hardest things often when you start a business is the business development part and like people 
I, th- I think sales is one of those things that people either love or they hate or they they have an affinity for or they don't or they think they're not very good at or they are or whatever. But what I found over time was um, that I really, really started to love the business development side of it and I loved being able to help um, organisations and communities solve the problems that they were having and so, and, and that still continues today. And I would like to, to think that, um, that the, the passion that I have for, for the HitNet suite of products and services is conveyed to the customer um, and, you know, is, is um, being able to, to provide that offering. I think I've just completely messed that up. So. No, it's fine. Um, everyone who's listening, um, Julie and I are sitting in a podcast room at Hub where both our businesses are based um, and um, we're not sure if an alarm has gone off. We don't – it's stopped going off, so we're going to continue our interview. It's all fine. Yeah. Um, yeah, so, um, yeah, the business development is a, one part of it that – took me a little while to warm up because, you know, I was always of the view that I don't like sales, I'm not very good at sales, but over time um, when I understood the value that HitNet was providing to the communities and also I was much more invested when I became a co-founder of a business rather than just being a technical manager on a project, Um, yeah, it completely changed the dynamic, I think is what I'm trying to say. I'm really glad to hear you say that once you understood the value that HitNet provided, it kind of changed the way that you went around your business development um, uh, interactions. Uh, you hit the nail on the head. People do have really entrenched ideas about what sales represents and it's either this like lascivious kind of pushing of a product or it's this thing that people want to stay away because they associate it with cold calling and inappropriate marketing that makes them feel uncomfortable. Um Uh, In my business practice, I feel really comfortable with business development because as with HitNet, I feel like what we offer at RubyAssembly is a great value and it's quite unusual and uh, something that I feel kind of proud of. And one of the reasons why I decided to create Sell Less Mean More was to try and support people to move away from that feeling of needing to hard sell in order to make bank and in order to actually develop um, business relationships. Have you ever felt a little bit of comparisonitis in terms of marketing your business? I know that what you do is really unique, but are there any triggers that sometimes make you lean towards perhaps a less than or harder sell attitude to to um, connecting your service with potential clients? <laughs> Sorry, can you so, break that down a little yeah, bit? Yeah, cool. So... Um, Sometimes we can be triggered by observing other people's success or other people's like marketing activities and we go, oh, there's like four funnels of communication there and and they've got this particular client or um, uh, I I would like a slice of that particular pie. Mm. And sometimes as business owners, we can be triggered into um, reaction Mm. with our marketing rather than going, no, this is the way that I like to communicate our, our service and our mm. value. Is there anything that triggers you into a, like a bit of a less a less than attitude and reactive marketing? Okay. Does that okay. make a bit more sense? Yeah, yeah, definitely. Cool. Um, yeah, look, you know, I I would be inhuman if I didn't say that I sometimes envied people's success, but overall, you know, I 
um, because we what we are doing is so different and the market is really quite unique as well. Um, you know, I, I, I just, you know, got a fantastic network around Australia with the type of work that we do and, and you know, also love to um, help celebrate people's successes as well. Um, but, um, yeah, what we we do is very, very much uh, um, relationship building business development. It's not a, a quick sell. Um, no, not at all. It's because we're dealing mainly with government and not-for-profit organisations, um, they have specific budget cycles. Um, we're also, you know, the, the products that we sell are, you know, a higher end, so they're quite expensive. Um, and also it's all around new technology as well. So it's sort of like a triple whammy in that, you know, you have to be able to um, explain to people what this, you know, bright, shiny new piece of technology is going to be able to do. And you're typically talking with people who aren't, um, te technical natives, digital natives, and they don't necessarily un understand a, a lot about it. So you really have to break it down to make them understand the problem that you're helping um, them to solve. So, um, and, and also the other complicating factor is the people that we're selling to aren't the users of our products and services. They're, they're buying it install in one of their sites where the community where they work uses it so yeah it's it's not a quick sell um and as I said it's all about relationship building um there's a lot of trust around what we're doing as well um particularly with introducing um free wi-fi into a lot of communities for the first time there's a lot of um considerations you need to make and you also need to make sure that um, you know, pe people, um, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people are very, very positive about um, the digital world and um, being digitally included and see new technology as being able to break down all sorts of barriers and provide all sorts of opportunities to them, which is fantastic. But they also know that there are, that it can cause problems as well. And so there's very much a education piece around what we're selling and also um, there's an opportunity for, for them as the community to control how that is made available to the community and that's really, really important. So as you can see, it's... Really complex. It's very, very complex, But it yes. doesn't stop you from doing it, does it, the complexity? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well... It's it's fascinating and yeah I, I love it and and you know with me being a technologist you know my my personal passion now is is getting everybody engaged with the digital world so in in Australia there's there's about twelve percent of the population um, that are digitally excluded so they're people that don't have access to the internet or they're people that do have access to the internet but don't know how to use it effectively so um, you know we know that. All, all um, governments and corporates are digitally transforming all their services, so that's great for us that live in the big cities. But for people who are in remote communities who are already um, suffering incredible disadvantage, it's just another thing that's going to drag them down. And so, you know, me as a technologist, I just really, really want to be able to use um, the, the products that HitNet's developed to be able to... Um, what we call on-ramp them into the digital world. Could I ask a question that is uh, 
I'm sure you'll have an opinion on it's not necessarily related to hidden net. But do you think that uh, Generation Y or millennials will have a very different experience of connectivity in old age because of the fact that they are digital natives? Like when I look at, say, my grandmother and how um, relatively isolated she is um, because of not being au fait with technology, um, but then when I look at um, how many more services and offerings we have to keep us connected as communities now for people who are, you know, they're using technology all the time, it kind of makes me feel a bit hopeful that old mm. age will not be as lonely or yeah. disconnected. Do you have any thoughts about that? Yeah, it's not really something I've thought about. Wow. Um, yeah, well, you would hope so. You would hope that um, people would have built up those skills throughout their lifetime to be able to stay connected and you know like I know myself um you know through social media platforms um you know it's a fantastic way to stay connected to family and friends and so if you've established those networks as you've been growing up then you know they're there for you in your later years you know when you're alone or in that nursing home or or whatever um yeah I, I suppose so, but you know, gosh, who knows what what, what <laughs> technologies we'll be using by then, Yulanthi? I have no idea. Um, may I ask if you have a mistake that you've made in your business that you're willing to share, and um, and how you changed your practice or just learned from it? Hmm. <laughs> yeah. Well, we all make mistakes. That's for sure. Um, I can't actually. Think of one quickly off the top of my head that I'd like to share, but okay. I, I just think it's important to, if you do make a mistake, admit that you've made a mistake and to own it, um, and to you know if you have if that has impacted somebody along the way, to make sure that you apologise and mend bridges and explain what happened. Um, but also, you know, if you do ma- make mistakes, the most important thing is to learn from those mistakes and don't keep making those same mistakes again. Um, so, um, yeah, so I guess that's just sort of the process around it. I, I don't have one off the top of my head, sorry. It's okay. Um, and I'd like to speak very briefly about cash flow in business and money. Mm-hmm. Um, it can be something that um, business owners are really loath to uh, to address head on. Has your relationship with money, the way it works, um, the way that you use funds in your business, has that uh, really changed as you've gone from being in the academic space to being a business owner? Oh, definitely, yeah. definitely. Um, so when we were in the academic space, we tended to get um, rounds of government funding. So um, so that was very different dynamic with money compared to now when we sell products and services. So we do actually have um, – we have recently got a couple of grants um, as well. Um, so we've sort of got a mix of grant money coming in, as, but that's for specific projects. It's not for sort of operational funding. Um and we still, you know, we're still selling um, products and services as well. So, so really, moving from the academic environment where we were funded, um, government funded us, to now being a, a business where um, government is essentially one of our customers. So it's a very different dynamic. Mm. Um, so yeah, definitely, completely changed um, the 
the the way we think about cash flow and um, yeah profit and loss. Um, and in closing, what is on the horizon as your next challenge for HitNet or the next iteration of it? Is there something that you're really looking forward to or thinking about? Or Yeah, well, um, with that outdoor hub, which we nicknamed Mobile Max, by the way. <laughs> um, yeah, so he's starting to take a life of take on a life of his own so at the moment we've just um we've just um exported for the first time which is really exciting yeah and so we've had two mobile maxes go over to the solomon islands and so we've got a project with um um, dfat with ozade over there um uh, on ramping uh young Solomon Islanders into the digital world and this is off the back of the Coral Sea Cable that the Australian government's rolling out from Sydney to the Pacific Islands. Um, So at the moment this project is just a pilot project but we're really excited to see um, where that's going to go and the idea is to be able to scale it throughout the Pacific Um, and, yeah, I just think it's going to open up all sorts of possibilities. So really excited about that opportunity. It is really exciting. I really like the fact that he's called Mobile Max as well. Oh, and and I meant to add the other... other (laughs) exciting bit about him is that um mobile max runs currently runs off a a battery but we're making we've just developed the solar powered version for the pacific islands so i'm going to be going over there next week to set it up and test it for the first time so exciting! that is really exciting Mm. Uh, julie i've learned so many things about hitnet um and i'm now really excited to explore more around the idea of the um Aboriginal technologies that are there. I've Mm. learned a lot from this and hopefully um, our audience has as well. Thank you so much for joining me on Sell Less, Mean More. We're going to include links to HitNet um, and probably uh, probably Julie's LinkedIn as well in the notes for this podcast. Um, Julie, thank you so much for being here. Okay, it's great to talk to you, Lanthi. Bye-bye. I hope that you enjoyed my conversation with Julie as much as I enjoyed having it. I found her insights into taking an academic project into a sustainable business really interesting and I was also quite inspired by the idea of building technologies that respond to communities' needs as opposed to the ideas we think they have about their needs. This has been Sell Less, Mean More and I'm your host, Yolanthi Gabri. I look forward to bringing you another interesting conversation with another local Australian entrepreneur soon.